designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. I I just fell in love with that person who was in the middle of things and had to do with everything. The building, the people, the lives, the stories, the commitments, the deadlines, trying to do the right thing, trying to stick to the principles of what's authentic. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Welcome back. I'm excited to get right to the episode this week. And this week's episode features a conversation with Angel Ion of Ion Studio. And Hel and I met at the Association for Preservation Technology International Conference in Miami in 2019. And that was one of the first APT conferences where I met a number of preservationists of color that I didn't already know. It was very exciting for me. So it was at that conference that Hel debuted his book, Reglazing Modernism, and I was in awe. Once the book was widely available, I made sure that I got a copy for the Quinn Evans office because it's just such a fantastic resource of case studies. I highly recommend it, and I will make sure to put links to it in the show notes. And Hell's company, Ion Studio in New York, integrates architecture and historic preservation to help ensure the viability of significant properties. The studio seeks to transform the built environment with contemporary, sustainable, and architecturally appropriate interventions. And to make sure to safeguard and enhance significant properties for the enjoyment of future generations. Enhel himself is an architect and preservationist with more than 25 years of experience. We talk about his journey in the episode, so I won't give you too many spoilers, but I will say that he is a native of Havana, Cuba, and his career has taken him from Cuba to D.C. to New York and many other places, I'm sure. He currently serves as vice president of Save Harlem Now, He's also the vice chair of the board of trustees of the Preservation League of New York State. 
He is a member of the board of directors of the James Marston Fitch Charitable Foundation, as well as numerous other organizations that are included in the show notes. Be sure to check out the Tangible Remnants Instagram page to see some of the photos of the buildings that we discuss in this episode. And if you haven't followed the podcast on Instagram yet, be sure to do so the next time you're on the platform. Our handle is at Tangible Remnants. It was great to connect with Enhel to learn more about his journey. And so without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between me and Enhel Ayan. I remember when I met you is also when I saw the book that you put out, Reglazing Modernism, and I was fascinated. And so before we jump into the book, why don't you tell me a little bit about what got you into preservation and architecture? Well, as you know, I'm, I'm originally from Havana, Cuba. And when I was in, in architectural school, I was really into a sustainable design type of class. And I was a TA on that class since I was in second year. And I thought my, my career would kind of go that way because it, it was really cool, this whole issue about sustainability and so on. And my professors had kind of determined that they would hook me up on this other program where I would do a PhD and that they would also join the faculty of the School of Architecture. And I was, I was so excited nice. about all that. And then all of a sudden, <clears throat> when I graduated, I was told that some of the faculty had decided that I really wasn't a good fit because I was the kind of student who was just interested in, in the academics. And I wasn't kind of like a global student who was also interested in all the political stuff that the communist system wanted to be part of. And I was like, I'm not that kind of person. And yeah, I'm here to be an academic. I'm here to take classes <laughs> and do good on them. Right. So it was it was really disappointing and and confusing. But then my professors also say, Wow, we, we're not gonna be able to to keep this kid here. And they said, Well, why don't we just recommend him to this other place? And they call this other place the National Center for Conservation, Restoration, and Museum Studies. And they told the person who used to run the place, hey, this kid is so what you want to meet. And <laughs> we, we had some plans. It's not going to happen. But I think you may want to consider him. And she said, sure. And can you actually send me somebody else? And I ended up working there with the person who I consider Number one in, in my class, my Brunette, she lives in Miami now. And there mm-hmm. I was with my center, National Center for Conservation. And it, it was this kind of like a, you know, 1960s top down kind of government, not just because it was Cuban socialism, I think it was a global trend at the time, this kind of global vision mm-hmm. of conservation where we're going to create this conservation plan for the monuments from this kind of very patriarchal or parochial society and environment. And then we got to implement that in this town or in this palace and so on. And of course, the model really didn't work. And eventually the place was, it fell apart. But that's, that's how, I, how I got started because then there I was. I had just graduated and I had all these ideas about what, I, what the, the future would bring to me. And, and then all of a sudden, none of that happened. 
but I was in this really fascinating place with people mm-hmm. who I had, I had to really get to know and to have lots of respect for, and were really, really into the business of heritage conservation. And I had a lot of respect for them. And then at the same place, all of a sudden, six months into it, I learned that they were teaching this lessons in conservation and rehabilitation of the built heritage. And I said, wait, I'm here and I work the teaching the masters in, in conservation. I'm doing yeah. this. Huh. I fell in yeah. love with it. I really, I really fell in love with the profession. Something happened one day. My mentor, Daniel Tawal, there was a collapse of the San Francisco convent that they were doing big mm-hmm. conservation work. I heard the news over the weekend on the radio and, and on Monday morning, everybody rushed to the office to, to find out what's going on. And I, and I got to be there early and everybody else was there as well. I guess everybody had the same idea. And Daniel Tawala said, yes, okay, I'm going to the government right now. And he said, can you come with me? And I said, okay. And I went there and, and I saw the man walking to the job site, being the architect, he was the chief architect, and then take the bull by the horn and talk to everybody about all these different issues like How's the family of the person who the thing collapsed on him? He, how, how are they doing? How many oh kids? Oh my goodness. I mean, that kind mm-hmm. of a personal conversation. Right. But then talk about how did it happen? Why? Why were we using that kind of tooling? And what are we going to do to shore and to support? And what's happening over here? And I, I just fell in love with that person who was in the middle of things and had to do everything. Yeah. Everything. The building, the people, the lives, the stories, the commitments, the deadlines trying to do the right thing, trying to stick to the principles of what's authentic. Are we going to replace that column with stone? Are we going to cast it in concrete? What are we going to do? This is where that man now over the weekend died, sadly. So I was just fascinated by it. And anyway, that's a short way to tell you that I got into it and then I did my master's and I, I was hooked. I'm still on it. I love it. And so that's such a fascinating story. I love that it's also not necessarily the straight path in terms of you thought you were going to go into being a professor, being in academia, and you're like, nope, we're going to pivot. And I I love that it worked out to the point where you're like, I'm going to stay with it. And now you have your own firm doing just that. How was the process of getting to the point where you knew that you wanted to start your own firm? Well... When I was at Columbia doing well, I came to, I was handpicked at that place to come to the States mm-hmm. for an exchange program. I was at HAPS in the summer of 1999 working at HAPS in DC. And then I moved to New York and decided not to go back to Havana. And they haven't seen me since then. But, um, <laughs> uh, that should be said. Uh-huh. And I'm proud of that. But uh, at any rate, mm-hmm. they, I decided that it would be important for me to to go to school again because there were certain things that I really didn't know and I really didn't understand that, you know, glass windows have double pane windows and they have heating. We don't have right. heating in Havana. <laughs> it's too hot. <laughs> oh, right. Totally different climate. Who would yeah. be heating yeah. in Havana? So a boiler, <laughs> all these things were really odd, and they didn't understand what they were for. And it was also mm. the summer, and not even like 
spring and winter here. So I was clueless and right. terrified by all of that. And I told myself, well, if I'm going to stay here, I'm going to go back to school because I know I can do that very well. <laughs> and sure enough, I moved to New York and I applied to this program at Columbia Preservation. And I, I got into it. I was super happy to be into it. And it, there was some degree of flexibility in the program that I attended. And I was able to take other classes. And I took a class called professional practice that was offered to the MR students. And I thought that the whole thing was really fascinating. I love it. There were so many things that were different than the stuff I knew about, but yet were such an important part of the, the profession. And, you know, defining right. roles and responsibilities, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I fell in love with it. And one of the assignments was just to prepare a proposal to the professor. You guys are going to do my house. You're the architect. Give me a proposal. And then you, mm -hmm. I have to come up with the name of the firm. And, and I put down my own studio. And that's how the whole thing started. And it, <laughs> it, it really, I never thought of that. But doing that mm -hmm. exercise, it, I realized that. Well, I can have my own farm one day. <laughs> and and yeah. that class kind of planted a seed that there was something that mm -hmm. could be known as I own studio, architectural preservation, and that I would I would I would figure out a way to reconcile those two disciplines. It was very clear at the time to me that there was a, a sort of like a division of labor and that architects, mm -hmm. not, they don't really know how to deal with preservation and preservation sometimes it's just limited to the facade of the storefront and the envelope and they don't really get into you know, code stuff, NEP, fire protection right. and all that. And, and I thought that, oh, that was mine. And I, I thought that I wanted to do all that. And anyway, that's how it all started as an idea. And fast forward many, many years working in different firms and realizing one day that I had relationships, I had clients, I have business, I was bringing in business into a practice and I saw them sabotage those relationships that I brought in and, and oh, then goodness. tell me, well, it's what time for them to come to us. And I was like, they didn't come to you. I brought them in. Right. And I realized that it, that was kind of silly that I, I think I, I had grown to the point where I, I had enough experience to, to be able to do it on my own. And, and I felt that I had the most important thing. I, I felt that it's the, the, the curiosity, the impetus to do it, and, and, but also mm -hmm. the, the know-how and the understanding of the profession and all the things and that I had grown to the point. And I felt that this would be really the right thing to do. And I, I, I stopped bringing in clients to my office and the next big client, I kept it to myself and yep. put a team together, beat the competition. And they told me on a Thursday, here, I'm here, here's your group proposal. And I was like, oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> and how about the deposit? And the next day on Friday, they said, oh, the check is in the mail. I went home that Friday, I told my wife, and you say, you're really going to do this? And I say, yes. And on Monday, Monday I show up in the office. And I resigned. Sure. Two, day, two weeks later, I was, I was here. Same building, I'm still in <laughs> another room, just renting a desk by myself. And I did it. And it, it was kind of crazy, but I, I loved it. I think it's, it's, you know, like so many other things in my life that I, it kind of like, you know, 
a little bit accidental, a little bit kind of crazy, a little bit naive as well. Right. But here we are. Right. But it worked out. And I think it's also, I love that you were like, all right, well, send me the check first. And you actually like had the things in place to be able to make it happen. When I, uh, I co-founded a small firm, as you know, before I joined Quinn Evans. And so that was a little bit of a different experience. The war was more so like we both kind of put in some money and we were like, all right, we're just going to go figure it out. But I love that you were like, no, I'm going to get our fee out and just make it happen. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just taking it day by day, Yes, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. I have the privilege of having tons of mentors. I've been at places where people have taken me under their wings and have taught Mm -hmm. me and really guided me. and, And I've been a sponge all the time sucking in all this information and, and, and all that, I think is sort of number one, some degree of curiosity. It's sort of like a personal thing, but, but I, I also think that I, I always felt kind of foreign and, and, and and I really needed to understand 
and I still feel like that many days for, for many reasons. Um, but I think in, in that process, I saw lots of things and I learned and I, it became very clear to me that, that business, that you can't just, there's, there's, there, are ways, there are ways to do it and there are ways to do it. And, and I, I was yeah. in places that I saw, I saw them when they were struggling and I saw the struggles and I got mm-hmm. to know about those things. And those things scare me and terrify me to death, but also taught me a lesson. This is not how you do it. Right. So I think that was, right. I, that was a good education as well. And, you know, without naming names. Yeah, I was really lucky. Yeah, and I, I agree. I've, I, I've also had a number of mentors that have been influential in my life to even kind of train me. And because it's pers- especially in our field, like preservation, architecture, like it's definitely not something you're just going to learn in a book. Like you definitely have to be able to have the conversations, be in the field, know what you're looking at, because looking at something in a drawing is different than seeing it in the field. And so it's kind of like a both and because the books are still super helpful, but it's like being there, seeing it, being on the construction site seeing the broken concrete plaster whatever and how does it go together how does how do we put it back it's super important speaking of books and training one of the books that i found helpful was one that you worked on edited published put together about reglazing modernism so talk to me a little bit about how that book came about and what made you even want to put that together or participate on that project i, I work at a firm and for four years in new york and then i, I changed jobs and, and i went to a firm that was run by one of my professors at Columbia. And, and a few months into it, she said, well, we got these projects for the Guggenheim and, and you're going to be the project architect. And I said, <laughs> okay, sure, no problem. <laughs> I was terrified. Yeah. I was terrified. But, uh, you know, she said, Dad, what am I going to say? I'm not going to say no. I'm going to say yes. Right. And right. that the the project, the museum restoration project was was really fascinating. I mean, it, those were four long years of my life that I dedicated to that project. <laughs> it was complicated at all levels. It, it's, I mean, the building itself, it, it had it's just complicated in, in its in its design process from forty three when he got the commission to fifty nine when he yeah. made the building up and it's. And just for listeners, this is the the round Frank Lord Wright, big iconic Guggenheim in New York. You know, yeah. minor bit of minor yeah, building. Yeah, that 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 building. No pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I never I was trying not to think about the things, but but when when we delve into it, it was really it was a challenging, complicated project that had many faces of it, and and I had the privilege to be involved with. Many of them and work with tremendous amount, tremendous team, lots of people that I have lots of respect for. But we're involved with many items of the, the project, from the conservation issues, the materials issues, the the, the, the structural issues, and it, it was an amazing project. And and I work with really fantastic people and. and Silman, ICR, and uh, many other firms who I've learned tremendous amount of information from and we work together. But I also got to work at the windows and at the skylights. So, and working at the firm, we 
one of the things that we did is that we, you know, we, we had this original non-thermally broken steel frame windows at the, the, the monitor. You have the large spire mm-hmm. rotunda, and then to, to, the, to the north, to the left, you have this smaller three-story building that Bryce used to call it the monitor building. And they have two collections there that they, they call it the townhouse wing. Anyway, and mm-hmm. on those two floors of the third or fourth floors, you have original, original non-thermally broken steel frame windows that were in pristine condition, physical condition. They were galvanized wow. steel. They, they were in really good shape. But being a museum and how the museum environment had changed, and how the collection and the, the preventive conservation theory and practice has evolved over the years. There's a really high relative humidity that they have to keep in the museum. So when those cold window frames got cold <laughs> and they have high humidity environment, right. they had not just conversation, but they had things that were of concern in terms of the performance. So we ended up presenting to the Language Preservation Commission 18 options, 18 options to wow. do this, to do that, to retrofit it this way, add this. And none, none of them, we ended up saying that none of them were good and that we couldn't really represent to, to the client that by doing whatever we were to do in any of those options, we, 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 would, we would address the performance and we would improve the performance. And, and it became mm-hmm. very clear that the only way to, to provide a, a system that would actually perform according to the expectations was with removing everything and replacing it. So for me, that was sort of like a traumatic experience <laughs> being trained as a preservation architect, which you can treasure the original historic fabric, especially if it's in really good condition. It's basically if it's the, 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 the result of a significant building, maybe not architect and so on. Yeah. And it's like the windows, and you know how preservation is exactly. about windows. So <laughs> all, all of that, on the one hand, seemed like the right thing to do. On the, on the other hand, it seemed like this is completely wrong. <laughs> well, we had, we right. had gone past that point, and I think we had all these 18 options that I demonstrated that there was no better alternative. But that resonated. I mean, we ended up doing the job. We replaced the windows and so on. But that, that, that issue, that question of is replacement appropriate and the only way to go when you have modern buildings? Is it true that these kind of mm-hmm. modern buildings are a little bit different and there's perhaps even a, a different kind of a preservation approach, preservation philosophy, because these buildings are different? Right? Maybe the all good stuff was done for, you know, this heavy masonry, low-bearing building. This one's a little bit different. And those were questions that were in my mind, and I, 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 I was really curious about that. And, and I, I, I continued to think about it, and I continued to, 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 I wrote a little bit about it, and there's an article that I wrote on, on, on that. There's an article on kind of conceptual issues on, on the, whole museum project that was published at the Journal of Architectural Conservation. That was, it was just kind of like the first outlet for me to talk about those things. But what happened is that mm-hmm. over the years, I, I continued to 
locate projects that I heard of, learned of, knew of, where I can see what they did here for the windows, what they did here for the window wall, what they did here for the curtain wall. And then it became very clear right. that there was a pattern of several people doing several things, depending on the different mm -hmm. set of circumstances. The other thing I should mention is that when we were in the process of designing the, all these options, of course, one of the things I did is I, I went to every library at Columbia University and I, I, I was looking for a book that would really tell me how to do this business yeah. of conservation and modern architecture and specifically on the windows. And there was none. <laughs> I was really disappointed because I, I've heard that that was the best architecture library in the world. <laughs> and I had been there as a student and I remember spending a significant amount of time in the library. I really enjoyed being at Avery and, and uh, it turns out I didn't have the book that I needed. So I think fast forward, what happened is that I, it became very clear to me that something needed to be said, that there's there a lot going on, going on. This is an important topic and it really needs to be discussed. And that is not, it's not black and white. And, and it all depends on what, where, and how. And that, that needs to be clarified. And I, I felt that I need, that I had the skill set and the experience to, to delve into that and to deal with it and understand it from a practical level, from a conservation perspective, but also from a uh, building envelope, gla glass and glazing type of thing. And I, I was so fascinated. When I, when I opened the office, this is a good one. I told myself, well, <laughs> now I'm working on my own. I'm going to have all the time in the world that I want. I can do whatever I want, anytime I want. <laughs> whatever you want. It's going to be all whatever I want. So I applied for <laughs> the James Marston Fitch Mid-Career Preservation Fellowship. I had met Professor Fitch in Havana when he visited in the 1990s. Oh, wow. Yes. And I... I he came to the place that I was working at, and we, we, I knew that this American professor was coming. I really didn't know much about him, and I certainly didn't know much about preservation in America because they don't talk about that in Cuba. But I remember yeah. meeting Fitch, and uh, it was really kind of like a cool thing that I got it because it, it meant something very personal. I got the grant for the mid-career fellowship, and I did the research. I think at that time I had a sense of all these case studies that I've seen. And when, when I work on them, the more I work on them, it became very clear that they, needed, they each needed to be presented and they each set a part of a story or a longer story. And, and then I think I ended up putting them together and saying, listen, there is no different approach. And mm. I think that the tools that we have at hand still apply, but there are different approaches that are specific to this building topology, to this, this building family, let's say, that are not necessarily what we do for more traditional buildings. And I was able to say that they, these three main intervention approaches are you know, restoration, rehabilitation, and replacement. And, and those 20 case studies, they, they, they each fit into one of those categories alone or into more, one, more than one. And that was the point that I was trying to make. You don't have to replace them. Replace them. Replacement is not the only option. Replacement is one of the options, and it depends on when. 
And I also felt that it would be very important to also be clear about what was done in each case and why and how. Mm-hmm. And being able to talk about it on a, at a technical level and going deep into it, but also to visualize it in a way that was clear. Because it's this yeah. is the glass and glazing thing. This is the visual thing. So the visual. Yeah, and well done because you, you succeeded in doing both of those options, by the way. Or both of those objectives, because like the book is beautifully Thank done, you. and like I really love even the matrix of how you like kind of summarized all the case studies and kind of the time frame, period of significance, where they are, what their approach was. It was just amazing to be able to get a quick snapshot of it and then to dig deeper into it. So it's really. Fun. And I would be remiss. I'm I'm super glad glad to hear that because as you can imagine, there were tons of hours that went into. We was all together, right? Right, because I had nothing else to do. I have my own office, and I had nothing else to do. Of course, you know, free time, all the free yeah. time in the world. But I also, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to team up with with my co-author, Uta Pugieser, who who was really an important part of that. I think Uta and I, we we met at the Dr. Momo conference in in Mexico City, 2010. I attended, nice. I was presenting there on the work at the Guggenheim and, you know, my 18 options <laughs> that led, that led to replacement. <laughs> and she approached me and she said, oh, that's wonderful. You know, I dealt with something like that too, once. And, and so we exchanged cards there and I really liked, liked her and, uh, and we, mm-hmm. we decided to collaborate. And I, when I said that. She sent me a lot of the, the information on the, the European case studies that she, she's the one who pointed out, hey, look, this one. So by the time that I was done with the research for the Fitch Foundation, I felt that the material that we had accumulated, that I had accumulated as part of the Fitch Foundation research was uh, serious enough and deep enough that it, it shouldn't just end up being a PDF and someone's hard drive, right? Right. It, it, it couldn't. And so we, we had the conversation and I, and I, I told her, let's just do this. Let's, let's do a book. It's gotta be a book. And she had some relationships with her counselor. She had published with them before. And it's funny because we reached out to them to ask them for advice. So we have this idea about this book and I think it's going to be called Regazing Modernism. And this is what's going to be about. And we have mm-hmm. 20 case studies and whatever. And they said, but can you tell us what do you think? And how do we, how do we put this together to go to a publisher? Right. And they were like, wait, t- don't go anywhere. <laughs> Let's talk. <laughs> and we were like, what? Okay. <laughs> so we were very lucky. We were extremely lucky that, that we, we, we had those relationships. And of course, it's, it's, it's not just what I did. I think, you know, at, at a certain point, my entire staff worked on, on the book. I, I hired someone mm-hmm. who, who started just doing the 3D models. And, and Carlos, they here past COVID. He, he was here for a long time. I, at a certain point, also, the publishers said, all right, this is good. We have a deal, but, but there's going to be a couple of changes. Number one, mm-hmm. you have to change the name. And I was like, what? And number two, you need to drop some case studies and add new case studies. And I was like, what? 
Oh my gosh. I'm done with research. That's it. I'm done with research. So the staff had to, I remember assigning research tasks to the staff. Hey, look, this building in the UK, why don't you make this phone call, talk to this person, see if you can get this information, what do we learn, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I, I, I was, I'm lucky to, to have lots of support and people who are excited about it. And I think people, people who, who understood the, the importance of it, um, and, and that mm-hmm. been able to support it. And uh, I'm just lucky that we, we took it to the finish line and that it's out there. Yeah. And then more importantly, just to, to see the way that people have reacted to it. And, you know, the, the APT book award thing was really, really humbling. Yeah. I, I would be remiss to say that I work at the Guggenheim Windows with Bill Rose. And do you know Bill? He's, he's great. He's in uh, Urbana Champagne. And, and mm-hmm. the, the previous ABT conference that I had attended, Bill Rose won the, the book award for his book, Water in nice. Buildings, that I, 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 I read. And so for me, the mm-hmm. award was like, wow, this is like really good stuff. Like people at Bill, Bill's level get to get And right. never crossed my mind that, that the book would get it. So. It's really, really amazing. It's like you're official, official. <laughs> you got, you got the book award. <laughs> but then also, I'm also grateful for you for even one for yeah, following through, but also for having the courage to be like, yeah, the book that I want isn't here. I'm gonna put it together, make it happen. Because I think that's something that's gonna, it's so needed, and I think it's something that's probably gonna keep coming up more and more, particularly as time keeps going on and more his, more buildings become eligible to be historic i was actually thinking (laughs) right exactly but it's also kind of like buildings that are being built today i'm curious once we get to the point where like oh how are we going to preserve this drywall situation and like so i feel like there's so much still coming to the field for what preservation is going to mean in the future oh my goodness i mean just to stick to the same the glazing molinism stuff Look at the way that stuff is being built today in, in glazing, that unitized curtain wall systems that you cannot tear apart. They're, they're designed to, to, to last forever. And if you ever need to do any kind of intervention, it's going to be very tough to <laughs> take the things apart. There is no such a thing as localized repair on a unitized curtain wall system. It's really impossible. So, and, and the assumption, the presumption, I would say, is that they're so well designed that they're never going to fail, and water is never going to water is never going to get in. <laughs> yep, and the the Titanic was an unsinkable ship. No, you know, <laughs> yes, that is a definitely a future problem for future preservationists because it's it's coming. <laughs> I hope that I I paved the way and I told them how to do it, but I hope I don't want to I don't want to write that book. <laughs> <laughs> You left a good precedent for whoever's <laughs> going to write the next one. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. Well, I cannot believe time is already flying by. So before we wrap up, how are things going with your firm? I'm super happy about where we are and also with what we have as a firm and where we are going, the things we have. I think we are working on a variety of projects from a group of 20 plus buildings in a 
National Storage site that we are renovating for the developers, the conservation-minded developer, and, and I should not name names nor sites. Yeah, that's fine. But that's really, really, really exciting. We, we've done, we're doing a lot of work that we're completing right now. Our project at the Brooklyn Museum is, is in construction right now. We're removing 1970s window glass precast curtain walls on the rear facade facing the parking lot and installing new aluminum mm -hmm. glass curtain wall that's all approved at the Landmark Commission public hearing several years ago. And it's just exciting that we're finally getting to that, that stage of construction. We're just finishing a, a project in Brooklyn where the Nighthawk Cinema, where we've been doing, we've been involved from since the conversion, and we're now finalizing all the exterior work, but also putting very visible rooftop photovoltaics on the building that are really visible from the street on a designated landmark and that's sort of like a way to show like this, this, this is, this gotta be okay. And there, there are ways to do it and there are ways to do it. it yeah. here's, here's a way to do it. It makes sense. So I'm really excited to finish that. And, and we're doing at the same time, more and more work in, in, in churches. I, I've, I've always, for a Cuban kid who, who grew up in, in an atheist mm -hmm. society or, him, for him to be fascinated with churches is, is one of those contradictions, but I love it. And we're, we're doing we're doing important work, and we're trying to really help people. And it, it's really really exciting. And I also, in those in terms of the projects we have, and you know, I can name them all in a second. Too many things happening at the same time. And I'm, I'm I'm excited about the the direction that the firm is taking and the the growth. Mm -hmm. that has seen that there's seven of us right now. We have a couple of opponents for two more people to be, just deal with the work that we have. That's exciting. And, and that's, that's a challenge on its own. How do, how do I grow right. for our, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of quality and so on. That's a really fascinating mm -hmm. challenge that puzzles me and excites me and terrifies me as well. But it, it gets me out of bed. Today. Yeah, even without coffee. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode show notes. Special thank you to Sarah Gilberg for letting me use snippets from her song, Fireflies. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all the network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time. Remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling an inclusive history. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I could see us catching them and setting them free Honey, that's what you do That's what you do to me I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging. 
the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.